Friday, April 2nd, 2010. And today we're going to continue with what we've been doing this week, taking kind of a look around the nation, a look around the world in the, in the local news and media. I don't do that a lot, but once in a while we have to pull our head up out of the rabbit hole and look around and see you know, exactly what's going on out there so we can be aware of things that, that cause the types of disasters that we are preparing for in the first place uh, with our daily prepping activities and things like that. Today we're going to be looking at it a different way than we have for the rest of the week, though. I'm going to look at some things that are going on. I'm going to examine some of, are we in recovery? And a long time ago, a prediction that I made, I'll tell you about that, and I'll tell you how I think that's playing out right now. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take a, a moment to do our housekeeping and thank our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Western Botanicals is an amazing company with amazing products and amazing resources for you. Everything you can possibly imagine from herbal supplements to herbal preparations is available either pre-prepared or as wild-crafted or organically available whole herbs. Uh, and a tremendous amount of information as well. They also have a preferred member program. You pay them $50 a year, and in return, you get 25% off of every single thing that they sell. Of course, if you join the member support brigade, you get that absolutely free. So hold on to that thought, because I have something special for the members brigade in a minute today, at least uh, for a few people, for new members brigade members today. Next up today is the Berkey Guide with Directive21.com, a reseller of Berkey light water filters. They need almost no introduction among my audience because they are one of the best water filter systems available out there. Today, when I'm uh, giving the Berkey guy his uh, sponsor recognition, I want to make you aware of something he's doing this month. He is running a contest this month himself. He's running it on his uh, board at our forum which is uh, the Berkey Guys Forum. And here's what he's given away. He's given away a Berkey ki- a Go Berkey kit, a Berkey light, and a travel Berkey. Uh, basically, all you have to do is send him an email and be on his newsletter list to join the contest with full details about who can win what are available at his uh, forum at the Survival Podcast Forums. I will put a link to that today's show notes. But, hey, you know what? It's, uh, it's free stuff, and it's good stuff. So I would enter this contest uh, the thread's pretty active already. It looks like uh, 20-odd people have joined just from the post there. But even if a few hundred people join, there's some pretty good odds that uh, you can win something here. So uh, check out the Berkey guy and check out his contest. Next up today is I want to remind you to connect with us through our social media outlet, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube primarily. I want you guys to know I'm not real active on Facebook and Twitter. I tweet once in a while. I, I post to Facebook once in a while. If you really need to get a hold of me, the way to do that is by email, jack at the com. I do read all my email. I get a lot of email from you guys who put quirky subject lines and go, well, maybe that got you to read it. I read all my email, folks. I don't respond to it all. I try. I, I really do. But uh, I get probably a 1,000 emails a day at least just from the audience. So um, I, I, I can't reply to all of them, but I do read them. 
Uh, I might read them really quick, but I read them. So if you need to get a hold of me, Jack at the survivalpodcast.com will do that. I don't publish it online because I don't like spam. Last but not least, uh, the Member Support Brigade. If you consider joining the Member Support Brigade, you'll get exclusive content available only to members, like that $50 a year value membership to Western Botanicals just for one of them, and a lot of other really great stuff, including discounts to about 18 other vendors, uh, along with a bunch of free ebooks and a bunch of free other things. But since it's Friday, and it's the beginning of a new month, I figured I would throw out a little sort of a contest, if you want to call it to that, to the audience. And uh, what I'm going to do is I will make available, I'm only making five of these available, and it's a race to see who gets them first. You can join the Member Support Brigade today uh, for $25 for your first year. It'll be $50 a year after that, but, of course, you can cancel any time. How do you get that? Well, I'm going to give you a discount code right now. When you go to sign up, use that discount code, and if it works, that means you're one of the first five, and if it doesn't work, that means that you missed the boat and you weren't one of the first five. Uh, but that discount code is, well, it's going to be an easy one to remember, 4321. Yep, 4321. Again, it'll work for the first five people to try to use it today. But even if it doesn't work for you, if you've been thinking about joining the Members Brigade, consider joining the Members Brigade today. Again, I really think it's a solid value. I think you get a good return of investment on it. Uh, just from the Safe Castle Discount Membership and the Western Botanical Discount Membership alone, we're talking 79 bucks in value just with those two. Uh, and today, for the first five people, 25 bucks. Now, remember, again, uh, the recurring membership is $50 a year, but you have a year to decide whether you want to keep it and cancel if you do not want to keep it. That knocks out our housekeeping today. Let's get into uh, talking about uh, the things that are going on out there and how they're affecting people um, and how maybe they're misleading people a, a little bit. Let's start out with something that's just, I don't know, kind of pisses me off. Uh, it's not really much of an indicator other than the recession is not just hitting you and me. That we think about recession and we think about how harmful it is to uh, the individuals. And we blame the government. We blame the big corporations. Well, it's definitely harmful to the big corporations. Trust me, um, there are a few companies that really profited by this debacle and a few segments that really profited by this debacle. But most of the big companies are hurting just as bad as us. But who's really hurting are the state and local governments. And that's somebody we don't think about a lot. But the response to it still is pissing me off. Here is a headline from a story today uh, from CBS News. Recession causes speeding crackdown. Traditional 5 to 10 mile per hour speed limit cushion may be disappearing as budgets tighten according to report. Here you go. According to a USA Today report Wednesday, police around the country may be cracking down on drivers within the traditional 5 to 10 mile per hour cushion of the speed limit as the recession continues to pressure, uh, put pressure on state and local governments or state and local budgets. Not only are the speeding tolerances much lower, but the frequency of a warning instead of a ticket is way down. James Baxter, president of the National Motorist Association, told the paper, most people if they're stopped now are getting a ticket, even if it's only a minor violation of a few miles an hour. The Journal of Law and Economics published a study last year finding traffic citations are issued more frequently during recessions. And researchers from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and the University of Arkansas Little Rock found a similar leak. A 10% drop in revenue growth can be expected to cause a 6.4% jump in the number of traffic tickets issued, according to the report. So, 
you know, and, and here's, here's the thing. Uh, but the National Troopers Coalition, which represents 45,000 state troopers around the U.S., disputes the link. I think you'll find enforcement is exactly the opposite, says Sergeant Michael Eads, the group chairman, told the paper. A lot of states have cut trooper positions or frozen positions. Several states have grounded their aviation units, so they're not doing as many speed details. Um, I'm sorry there, uh, what was it, Sergeant Michael Eads. Um, I don't think that, you know, the only people that are out there writing tickets are state troopers there, bud. So maybe overall on the highway systems interconnecting the cities, maybe the state troopers are writing less tickets. I don't know if that's true or not. From what I saw in Texas, it's not true. The last time I drove out to Arkansas, I saw more state troopers and local cops throughout their jurisdictions than I've ever seen before in my life. But even if I give you the benefit of the doubt on nationwide the state troopers and just say, hey, it had to be a busy day in East Texas that day. Um, I see this happening, and I think people see this happening everywhere, and I've heard a lot of people talking about it, and uh, it seems pretty daggone obvious. So I, I don't you know, find this guy's objection to be uh, believable. It's also pretty simple to simply ask yourself a question of how many law enforcement officers do you see running traffic detail. Well, what is the bigger picture? What does this tell us? Um, if we believe this, and, and I for one do, then it tells us that the city governments and the county governments, so, you know, we start looking at people like, and I've seen a lot of sheriffs out writing tickets, and that's something I've never really seen before in this area, is the sheriff department writing tickets. There's a little place uh, on I-20 as you're heading uh, east uh, out of here, between kind of Grand Prairie and Dallas, where it's not really Grand Prairie's district, and it's not really Dallas's yet, and there's this little piece of I-20 that actually is... Uh, part of the district controlled uh, exclusively by the sheriff's department, and they've been running speed traps there. Um, my brother-in-law, who, uh, who I can't name when I say something like this, has told me that there's more overtime available for police officers as long as they'll go out and write tickets right now. So even though the department's cutting back, if you want to make some more money, you can, but you can only do it in enforcement and traffic enforcement. Now, why does this piss me off? Well, it pisses me off because if you're, if you're taking away the 5 to 10 mile an hour cushion, that's the way people drive every day. So you know what you're doing. It's a conscious decision. It also, if you're going down below 5 miles an hour, you're taking out variances in tire sizes, for God's sakes. You're, you're taking out, you know, a, a variance in the guy passing somebody because the guy's doing 5 miles or under and he's doing 5 over. You're, you're really getting down to, you're just bilking people. But what it tells us is that government will not do without money of any size, shape, or form of government. If money disappears from one uh, pocket, they will find it in another. When property taxes go down, they have to cut budget somewhere. So where do they cut the budget? They cut budget to law enforcement. So law enforcement makes up and compensates for the lack of a budget by writing more citations and fines. And I'm not really picking on cops if you guys are out there writing things. I know some of you guys are forced into this crap. I know no matter what you tell me that you guys have quotas. I know that, especially certain uh, cities and certain uh, areas and what have you. I think it's completely wrong. And I know people say, well, if you don't speed, you don't have to worry. But, again, we're getting down to people being written tickets for writing, you know, going three, four, five miles over. Um, we're getting into the area of bullshit here. Uh, I also think if you guys want more money, 
I've been saying this for years locally to my council people around here and to the mayor, that we have all these things called side streets where children play. Uh, and we have people driving through these side streets that have 25 mile an hour speed limits at 50 miles an hour. Why don't you clowns go there and ride some tickets? And I'm very supporting of my local law enforcement. I really am. But when I see you guys riding tickets to working people during rush hour on the highway, the individual doing that instead of the, the, the group as a whole, I feel like, what an ass clown. You know, especially when there's a wreck two miles up the road. He could be helping somebody, but no, he's riding tickets. And I understand that there's an administrator making you do it. But if you guys are going to be made to ride tickets, take your asses to the side streets and ride tickets where kids are playing and in danger of being run over. There's a lot of room for that. But, folks, I'm going to get off my rant because it just bugs me. I saw a little girl get run over a few years ago not far from here where I said over and over that they needed to do something. So it's kind of stirred an emotional button in me. I didn't plan on venting today. My big point is I keep telling you that whatever we do to reduce taxation, government will find a new way to tax us. And one of the big things this makes me think of is the toll tags. And the plan that there is eventually to have toll tags and toll roads everywhere. And I know you don't think that's true. I know you think that's some kind of, you know, Jack's out there. It's April Fool's Day 2 today, and he's out there pretending to be a believer in the New World Order conspiracies. But listen, here's what's happening. Cars are becoming more and more fuel efficient. Not just hybrids. We're getting into a new realm of automotive technology now. We really are. And we're getting to a point where it's going to be pretty easy for the average person to own a vehicle that gets 40 miles per gallon or more. It's going to be, I would say, within 10 years, if you drive less than 50 miles a day, you'll be able to run your car on pure electricity. Uh, and, I, and I don't mean just a few people. I don't just mean some people. I mean a lot of people will be able to run on nothing but battery power at 50 miles to maybe even 75 to 100 miles. There's already cars that will do better than that, but they're limited availability and they're expensive and, and all these other things. But in time, I'm telling you, in time, it's going to become a consumer-grade car that does that. Now, what does that do to government revenue? Well, what it does to government revenue is it tanks it. They already took in billions last the last two years because of people driving less. The gas price went up, and the revenue to the government went down. That's the, one of their adjustments that they're making, is creating a, a national toll system that's going to charge you per mile to drive. And here's going to be the argument. We've got to pay for all these programs. We've got to maintain the roads. We've got to take care of the children. We have to have safety. You're already paying it anyway. We're just changing the form in which you're paying it. So keep an eye on that for an emerging trend. Uh, let's get a little bit closer to home, though, uh, with some of the things that are going on right now on a short-term, uh, kind of what I've been calling the false recovery and why I think it's actually coming now. The big news today is that new jobs have been created, lots of new jobs. How many new jobs? 162,000 in March. Well, that's a lot. We forget that we were losing millions of jobs a month, I guess, and this is like, you know, the guy's still dead, but uh, but we managed to, uh, to 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 file his uh, left toenail properly, and it looks good now. I mean, that's how this feels to me. But th there is some indication here of a waning of the recession in the beginning of what's going to look like recovery. And watch the media hype it all the way. Here's what it says. This is a report. This is from uh, the Wall Street Journal, the economy section. 
U.S. employers created jobs at the fastest pace in three years in March, but nearly one-third came from temporary hiring for the census, indicating the labor market still has some way to go to recover. The Labor Department said in a report on Friday that non-family payrolls rose by 162,000 in March, the largest single gain since March 2007. That compared to a revised 14,000 drop in February, when the number was likely depressed by blizzards that hit the East Coast. Economists polled the Dow Jones Newswires were expecting payrolls to rise by an even higher 200,000. The February figure was revised upward uh, from an originally reported 36,000 decline. Taking into account revisions to prior months, the U.S. economy added 54,000 jobs a month in the first quarter, fueling optimism about the job market's recovery. I'll stop reading at that point. You notice how the media always has to take this and prorate things. So it wasn't 162,000 in March. It was 52,000 a month for the first quarter. But we know that the first two months actually lost jobs. So why would they frame it that way? Because it creates, even the Wall Street Journal, it creates the illusion of sustained recovery. You're going to start seeing more and more of this. I want you to be aware that this is what you're going to see. I want you to realize this is what you're going to see. For those of you that are old-timers that have been here for a long time, you'll remember back when I was in the car, back when I was in the car with the crappy microphone, and you heard all the road noise and all the wind noise and all the sirens. Way, way, way back in 2008, I said the crash is coming, and it's going to be followed by a false recovery. And that false recovery is going to lead to an even bigger disaster in the future. I've been saying it, and here is the beginnings of it. And does that mean that I want you to run and head for the hills? No. Does that mean I don't want you to invest in anything in the next couple of years? No. What it does mean is I don't want you to go back to sleep at the switch. I don't want you to go back to the point where when your 401k comes back to its prior balance sometime in the next three to four years, which might happen. I'm not saying it will, but it might. Or if it gets close to just think, okay, well, everything's back to normal. It's all going to be okay again. I don't want you to ever lull yourself back into that sense of it's all okay to be on autopilot that you had up until maybe 2007, 2008 before all of this happened. I want, when you said never again about a year ago, I want you to have meant it. And I don't want you to lose sight of things. Because there's a lot of things out there that, uh, that are really going to be pointed at as everything's better. And when, the, when all of the media blitz happens, the sheep are going to believe it, even when they're still on you know, unemployment, even when they still are living in a city that's downtrodden. If the media says it's better, people will believe it's better. And as soon as they do, they'll start the spending again. And when they start the spending again, we'll get the illusion of economic recovery. Let me give you another story of an example of what's going on now. Now, what you have to understand is the employment rate is, unemployment rate is still over 10% right now. It's over 10%, and that's the official unemployment rate. If we add in things like students that are looking for jobs that have never worked before, people that have exhausted every extension that they've been given, people that have given up looking for work, if we add all that in, we're closer to a 20% unemployment rate. But here's what we're still hearing. I mean, this sounds like a great great headline to be reading on April 2nd, 2010. After the horrors of the drop of the market to near death and February over a year ago. It just sounds great. It's on Bloomberg, too. 
and Business Week. Um, U.S. stocks rise for fifth straight week as the U.S. economy approves. Uh, U.S. stocks rose for the fifth straight week, setting Standard & Poor's S&P 500 index and the Dow Jones Industrial Average their highest closes in 18 months, amid fresh signs the economy is recovering. Energy companies led the advance as crude oil exceeded $84 a barrel for the first time since October of 2008. Commodity producers rallied as a decline in the value of U.S. dollar lifted prices for gold, copper, and aluminum. 3M, the maker of 55,000 products from Post-it notes to repository mass, gained after Morgan Stanley said an improved profit forecast from Danaher Corporation was a positive sign. The S&P rose five, five, the S&P 500 rose 1% to 1178, completing its longest streak of weekly gains in almost a year. The Dow increased 76 points, or 0.7 percent, to 10,927. While the stock exchanges are closed today for the Good Friday holiday, futures of both indexes will trade until 9:15 in, in New York. So, U.S. stocks rise for the fifth straight week. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That sounds really good. That sounds like sustained sustained uh, performance. That actually would sound like to a lot of the sheeple, it would sound like Obama's doing a good job. I would sound like, boy, the market's better than it has been in a long time. Because what everybody always remembers about stock markets is the bottom and the top of major events. They seldom pay attention to the middle. And that's why they b- believe the bullshit the typical financial advisor. So if I told you that the stock market, the Dow Industrial Average, which is a bigger one that everybody talks about, I don't even think it's as important anymore as the S&P as an indicator uh, on a daily basis, but it's the one, so we'll, we'll use it because it's the one people remember. 10,927, it's probably going to break 11,000 relatively soon unless some kind of hiccup prevents that from happening. You would say, boy, the stock market's in better shape than it's been in for a very long time. Well, what if I told you in January of uh, 2010, the stock market was actually at $10,725? So it's only 200 points higher, roughly, a little bit less than 200 points, higher than it was on January, what is this, January 19th. We had this huge dip that went back down to $10,000. let us look, let us look a little bit further than that. Um, I can tell you that you know our huge, huge drops were way, way back in, in the 7,000s. But even in, let's say, oh, I don't know, November 10th last year, 10,246. So we have a 500-point spread on a market that's high. Let's look at the high. I, w- I want to make sure I get the high right. The high that was back on October 5th, 2007, 14,066. So the market's still down roughly, what would that be, about 35% from its high, but we've had the fifth week of gains. Even though if we go back as little as eight weeks, we've only had a gain that's not much more than the one-day gain that they're talking about in this article. I'm telling you, everybody's going to contribute to this. Even the conservative financial institution uh, publications are going to contribute to this for two different motivations. The liberal media, of course, wants to make it look like Obama's doing a good job. The investment community has to find good news. They need the money to come back into these investments so that they can start making money again. And that's really what it all comes down to. So that is just another sign 
that this false recovery is beginning to uh, to rear its head. Now, if there's going to be a recovery in the United States, there's going to be a recovery everywhere in the world, at least everywhere that uh, we're directly or indirectly connected to, because we can't have a recovery, let's say, without Europe having some sort of recovery. We also cannot have a recovery without creating one in China. As our appetite for crap increases, of course, the Chinese appetite to export their crap increases as well. And they're working really hard to turn their country into a blue-collar version of the 1950s in the United States. Not in a government way. Let me be very clear about that. I don't mean that they're trying to create a, a copy of what the U.S. democracy looked like in the 50s. What they're trying to create is a copy of what the United States economy looked like in the 1950s in post-war euphoria with the building crazes and, you know, it was a great thing to have a job working for one of the auto companies in the 50s or for a steel mill or as a construction worker. There was plenty of work for the blue-collar person and the white-collar person as well. It was a great economic boom. China wants one. Well, this is, I, I, I want to once in a while reach back and tell you that, that I've, I've said things in the past and I think some people have thought I'm crazy when I say them and a lot of them come to be. They, they, they really do. I said in the past that China needed a China. That China needed a way to tap into a cheap source of resources and labor so that they could become 1950s America because 1950s America utilized China. And it also utilized a lot of little countries throughout the world through diplomacy, through our own form of colonialism. Uh, and every nation that had ever done it had done it that way. The British did it with their British Empire. The Dutch had their own colonialism. The Germans had their colonial. All of this stuff that's ever built a nation to a really high level, they've always pulled resources from outside. There's been a variety of ways they've done it. They've done it through military force. They've done it through diplomacy. They've done it through negotiation. They've done it through backdoor deals. But one way or another, that's necessary. And that China would do it in Africa. And we begin doing it more and more and more in Africa. And I said that about oh, a year and a half ago. And some of you thought I was nuts. Well, here's the latest example of it. Um, the Sun, this is called China Mining Company Causes Unrest in Niger. Uh, the Sun wizened Tarag woman of El Azilic, uh, sorry guys, I'm not good at these African terms, have declared war on China. Like their ancestors, they once eked out a living selling dried salts from an ancestral well. Everything changed last year when the government leased their land to the China Nuclear International Uranium Corporation, CNOU, for uranium exploration. Left with no livelihood and no conversation, a hundred women gathered to launch stones at mining machinery. Now it's an eternal war, says Tatinia Salah, the 50-year-old leader who still seeks compensation for the loss of her salt. Her land contains one of the world's largest uranium deposits, and Niger was the world's sixth largest uranium producer in 2008. A resource-hungry China expands its holdings here. Local groups and the Turag-led political opposition are voicing concerns over Chinese investment in the Saharan state's graft-ridden mining industry. And he goes on to talk about how all of the engineers are Chinese and all the grunt labor is being done by the local uh, population of Niger. Now, here's what I found interesting. There is a comment here from a person I would believe is probably Chinese. Their, their name on the blog is Vash, V-A-S-H. 
And I'm going to read it as he wrote it. And there's some broken English here. Give this guy a break, okay? It's obviously not his first language. China paid billions of dollars to buy those land from the local government. It was the local government's problem not to share those wealth with the original landowners. China does not have the responsibility to hire every local person. Didn't the article itself say all the engineers are Chinese? Well, if the locals have engineers, I'm sure they would hire them for cheaper. All the locals could do is digging holes and carry bricks. So that, so what is wrong with hiring them to do such a thing? The Western anti-China propaganda is at work again. Most Western European countries colonized much of the world through the use of military force. They treated the locals like animals. Now when China is doing fair business in Africa, they accuse China of what was their own history. Tell me where this man is wrong. I didn't say tell me what you don't like about it. Tell me how it makes you feel angry. I didn't say tell me how it did bothers you. I want you to tell me where he's wrong. And if you can, please come to my blog, survivalpodcast.com, and today's show notes, and tell me where this guy's wrong, and I'll put a link over to this story so you can see the comment for yourself and read the rest of the article. I, I think it's hard for us now to thumb our nose at China and say, you guys should stay out of Africa and you should stay out of these little poor economies and look what you're doing over there. The U.S. has had zero interest in this for years. All we've worried about is Africa's offshore oil, and we've done that because we can, we can go in and get the rights to that, drill that, pump that, and bring it back here without getting involved in the local communities and avoiding the tangled nest that that creates like these uh, these bunch of old women that are throwing rocks at at the uh, workers because they took away their land. Here's the first thing we have to understand about what's going on here. These governments. This is why you need to feel blessed to live where you live. The government in these countries leased these people's lands. Well, what does that tell you? That they they have no respect for a right to private property. Wait a minute. Doesn't that sound like eminent domain? I guess that it does, other than the fact that these people weren't compensated at all. At least with them in a domain over here, people are given what they're told is fair compensation for their land. It doesn't sound like these ladies got anything. But what I can tell you is expect to see more and more of this as the global recovery kind of gets some steam. And there will be a global recovery. I know a lot of you, when I first said that, thought, hey, man, we're at the end game. There is not another run left in this thing. We're starting to see that there is. It may be the biggest run of all time. Whether it's a big run or a little run, I'm telling you the big drop is at the other end of it. I'm not sure what it's going to do yet. I am not somebody that claims that my forecasting ability is uh, is exceptional. I just really pay attention and I adjust uh, as things change. What I see happening in China is I see or in Africa, as I see China putting their toehold more and more into these, these, these nations. And watch as we start hearing about how important it is to help the people of Niger in the future. When I want to know something, how many times have you even heard of the nation of Niger in the past 10 years? Or 20 years? Other than it's, you know, if you were young enough right now, back in high school geography, where kids snickered because they thought it was a bad word, right? How many times have we heard of this country? Has anybody, you know, we've heard of Ethiopia, for God's sakes, and South Africa and Egypt, but how often did, did we ever hear of Niger? I, I can't remember ever hearing them, but I think that you're going to start hearing of them more because China's obviously decided this is a good place to put down some roots. Um, there's another commenter here named John. 
Vash is presenting the other side of the story. There is nothing wrong, Bullet. You may be, uh, you, you hire terrorists learning to fly. <laughs> I don't really understand what he's trying to say there, but I think John at least is right. Is there is another side to most stories. Um, there's a tremendous amount of resources left in Africa. It is the last undiscovered country in the world. It is the only place for modern-day colonialism. It's not possible anywhere else. Um, South America had its potential for a while, and fortunately for South America, the people of South America woke up, and in most of the South American nations took control of it. You can even say the same for Latin America. There's some exploitism there, but it's waning because the people are demanding their individual sovereignty as nations. In Africa, you might have a bunch of nations. You might look at a map of Africa and see all those nations, but those nations really aren't sovereign because the people in them don't have a way to put any type of control on their government. They go from one coup to the next to the next. Now, there's some exceptions. There are some stable nations in, in Africa, but the, the middle Africa, the place where all these resources are, are still in po points where a very small number of people control the country, at least could control the country as it relates to outside influences and how they let them in. You say, well, how is that different than the rest of the world? Because those people change based on who's strongest, not even based on propaganda. So whoever happens to have the biggest guns at the time is running these countries. Whether those guns are in the form of extortion capability or actual guns, doesn't matter. And that's what's going on there. So China, seizing upon this, realizes instead of going in and dealing with an unruly population, we can go in and deal with whoever's in charge right now. Cut a deal with this financially advantageous to them. They'll make the deal. And what they do after the deal is their own problem. And if they go away and someone new shows up, we'll just make the same deal with them. We can buy our way into this instead of using the military might of, you know, 100-year-old colonialism, which, which absolutely would not be tolerated today. So what does this have to do with us? How does this affect us? Well, folks, let me put it to you this way. If China can pull it off, if China can get into Africa and get into all these places and solve their resource issue with a billion-plus workforce, and almost two billion today, and a totalitarian government that can exercise control over its people, they are the next superpower. I know you don't want to hear that either. I know that some of you would think that that's an anti-American statement. Stating the truth isn't anti-anything. It's just reality. And we have to be prepared for that eventual rise. And the people with the most money in the world, people like Jim Rogers, the billionaires, are moving their assets into Asia and they're moving their families into Asia. Um, Jim Rogers has made sure his children speak Mandarin. He has property in China. He's moved a lot of his money uh, into the Bank of Hong Kong. There's, there's a reason that people with that level of knowledge and connectivity are moving that way. They see the West as being used up. Now, I'm not saying they're right entirely. I'm telling you the way they view things. And we need to understand that a lot of the international investment activity is going to be directed where the growth is. And if you want to see what the United States will look like in 20 years, it's not necessarily that the streets will be caved in and it'll look like the Wild West again. It could happen. I hope it doesn't. But I think you're looking more at Western Europe is we keep moving more and more towards socialism. 
and people become more and more apathetic and more and more likely to lay around. And we keep having to bring in more and more foreign labor to do the work that Americans are no longer willing to do because they don't have to anymore. As that continues to grow, if that continues to expand, then what we end up is the U.S. moving to a position of far less relevance in the world than we once had. Something akin to what the United Kingdom exercises today. The United Kingdom still has a lot of power in the world. It's still a major global player, but it's not what it was in 1900, and it's certainly nothing compared to the United States today. Now, do I think that's all not necessarily, necessarily a bad thing? I, I don't. I don't think it's bad if we don't have un, you know, unchallenged influence in the world. I, I'm okay with that. It's the methodology by which we're going there that bothers me. And what I'm seeing is a giant looting of this country. The last big hoorah is what I think is coming. And I mean that. The last big one. The, 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 the one that's going to be used to absolutely pilfer everything that's left, everything that's available uh, to people in the United States, and make us make one more gamble so that we can get it all back. This is like, well, it's like a casino when the guy has lost all his money. And he's on his way out the door. And he's resisted the temptation to put his credit card or debit card into the cash machine. But as he's walking toward the door, somebody there with the big dollar slot machines has the bells and whistles going off. And ding, ding, ding. And clank, 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 clank. And the big dollar coins are following in. And the w things are going off. And confetti's falling. And the big winner happened. So the guy says, I can get it back. That's all I need to do is get it back. I'm not going to go home $1,000 poor. So he goes and he pulls $2,000 out of his bank account, his last $2,000. And he says, if I just keep playing, I'll win. I don't have to make a profit now. I just have to get back what I've lost. And in getting back what he's lost, he loses more than he lost in the first place. And that's what I see the United States being set up for right now by the most influential and powerful people in the world. And this is not new, new world order conspiracy, folks. This is simply people with lots of money that only keep score with dollars that want more. And I'll tell you, the last part of it is going to be how global warming plays into all of this. Well, how, how, how does global warming possibly play in all of this? How does the global warming legislation and cap and trade, cap and tax work? Well, whether the U.S. gets on board or not, and eventually we will, I'm not saying we should, I'm saying we will, there is going to be a carbon trading scheme of some sort uh, rolled out. Now, it will either be done in the U.S. through government incentive or government enforcement. If incentive, or if, if enforcement is not able to be gotten through the government, they will turn around and they will change it to an incentive-based program. So, in other words, right now, uh, the cap and trade works, if it goes through, it would work by force. A government would say, if you exceed admissions, you either pay a fine or you, you, you trade for credits. Okay? Very simple. Um, if they can't get it through, and there's a strong possibility based on how uh, they've acted in the past uh, uh, couple months with health care that they'll get thrown out. The, the people that would really be behind this program will get thrown out. They're going to switch gears, and I bet you've never heard this before. You'll hear it for the first time today. If that fails, they'll switch gears to an incentive-based system. And they'll say, look, okay, fine, we don't want to impose these restrictions, but what we'll do is we'll set targets. And companies that meet their targets will get a tax break. That's easy to sell to Republicans in government, isn't it? 
What they'll say is any company that meets its expected, uh, or, or, you know, the more they, the more that they, uh, that they beat their target by, the better the tax break will be. It'll start with like a 1% if you just barely make it, and maybe it'll go to 4 or 5% or something like that. And you'll look at that and you'll go, that doesn't really seem that bad now, does it? It's, it's, it's a lot easier to sell to the sheeple, isn't it? So what happens is the same thing then. You end up with businesses that are clamoring for every dollar that they can eke out, that have first duty to their shareholders to return a profit, and part of returning a profit is paying away less of it in taxation, saying, hey, we've got to get on board with this thing. So one way or another, the carbon trading scheme takes off. Now, how does that fuel a global recovery and lead to looting of the American people? The American people were the guy that just lost $1,000 in the slot machine, and he's on his way out of the casino. They need the ringing bells to go off. You see, when this carbon trading scheme starts, it's going to look like a good thing economically. No one wants to tell you that, because they're afraid if they tell you that, you'll say, well, why, you know, the people that are at least willing to oppose it don't want to tell you that, because they're afraid that you're going to go, well, maybe we should do it. I want to tell you the other side of it. What it's going to do is it's going to create a real estate, uh, a version of the real estate bubble that we just had through trading and derivatives. What happens is we have a company like ABC Corporation, okay? And ABC, not the media, just random company, an XYZ. Right, so ABC has a target allowance from the government of 20. 21, I have no freaking idea. Whatever number the bureaucrats come up with. This year, they're going to produce 24. Now, whether it's enforcement, penalty, or incentive, tax break, they don't want to pay the, the excessive tax, which then becomes a penalty in their mind, or the actual penalty, which is even more money. So they, call, they phone up the CEO over at uh, XYZ Company and say, hey, what's your carbon allowance? And this is a very kindergarten version of this thing, but it makes it easy to understand. And, and XYZ goes, hey, man, our carbon allowance is 20, just like yours. And you go, man, I got bad news. We, we're not going to make ours this year. You know, we're at 24, and XYZ Corp goes, dude, we're at like 14. I could sell you four so you're par, or I could sell you six so you're under, and you get the better incentive. And the two, you know, two financial uh, uh, for CFOs of the companies reach a deal and say, okay, look, it would cost me um, an additional $5 million in taxes, so I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll give you... Two and a half million to buy your carbon credits. And they make the deal. And one company says the other company two and a half million. The other company sends the other company nothing. A phantom. Six carbon credits. And they put that on their tax return and they send that to the federal government. And now they pay the government nothing. So now, or nothing in addition to what they would pay normally. Alright? Uh, or they get a tax break. One way or another, instead of it costing them $5 million this year to be over their allowance, it only costs them $2.5 million. Now they turn to their shareholders and they say, we put $2.5 million to the bottom line. Everybody's happy. The company selling the carbon credits turns to its shareholders and say, our policy of being green added $2.5 million to our bottom line. And some of these deals may be in the billions. Our policy of being green added a billion dollars to the bottom line last year. Here is your dividend. What could be wrong with that? Doesn't that sound wonderful? Except it's creating money out of thin air. It's creating money that doesn't exist. 
It's $2.5 million put into the economy that was actually never there in the first place. And you know what will happen. Companies like Al Gore's that are already in place to do this will begin going out and finding every company they can with additional carbon credits. And they're going to create them. They're going to create companies with artificially uh, high limits for what they do. They'll go out and they'll look at a company that doesn't produce any emissions. And, and I, again, the numbers are arbitrary. They'll give them an allowance of 25. The guy's going to make two. They already know that when they give him the allowance. So it creates something for him to sell. So the Al Gore type company, and it's not just Al Gore, there'll be plenty of these companies doing this, goes in and says, hey, you know, you really don't have any connections to a big time company. Let us buy your credits. We'll pay you the going market rate, which today is XYZ. The guy says, hell, it's money for nothing. Sure, I'll take it. So he takes it, he expands his business with it or whatever. And then they go look for an evil polluter and they say, hey, look, we'll sell you this at uh, 25 cents on the dollar versus the penalty you're going to pay at the end of the year. And they just made a markup. That created money out of thin air. Then what happens is these things start to go into investment vehicles and we're turned to and said, see, see, we should have been doing this all along. We're investing in the future of a greener world, a greener planet. Everybody put your money into this. And stock advisors at Edward Jones and things like that start being told, hey, you've got to get your people into some of these mutual funds that are involved uh, with this, uh, this carbon trading stuff. This stuff is a gold mine. It's going to go on forever. And that's bad, but all of this is still manageable. But what happens one day? Well, somebody... Basically acting like, and again, this is a, a brought down to uh, grade school level to understand how this will actually work. But somebody that's an insurance salesman shows up to uh, Mr. Al Gore and says, Mr. Al Gore, you, I see that you're sitting on $50 billion worth of carbon credits. And Mr. Gore goes, yes, I have $50 billion worth of carbon credits. I'm eating my cheeseburger. What would you like to know? And the guy says, well, have you realized that you might not sell all $50 billion to that by the end of the year? How much did you pay for it? Uh, we paid $10 billion for it. Don't you think you should at least insure that $10 billion? Mr. Gore wipes the cheeseburger grease from his face, you know, turns his air conditioner up one more degree because he's a hypocrite and says, you know what, you're right. I should insure my carbon credits for $10 billion. So he buys an insurance policy. And everybody like him buys an insurance policy against the carbon credits that they have to make sure that if they expire or they carry forward or do whatever, and then somebody packages up a bunch of those insurance policies into an investment vehicle and sells the investments as basically a short against the carbon market. And then somebody takes those and packages them up together and sells them as a hedge against the short failing, basically making it uh, a put instead of a call. And that happens over and over and gets repackaged and repackaged and repackaged and repackaged. What does that sound like? That's what they did in real estate. That's what they'll do with this. And they'll do it much bigger than real estate because this will create the largest industry that mankind has ever seen. So that is one way to loot the American people on the way out the door. To give us a place to put our money that will feel is safe and friendly to the planet. On the other side of the coin, we look at the health care issue. Most people don't understand what the new health care bill has actually done. They really don't get it. All that they're looking at is it passed, so they're going to have death squads and kill us all. No, they're not. They're not. They're really not, and they never were. And that was a little bit nonsensical, and it made the opposition look foolish, and it weakened our position. 
And the people that participated in that, I'm sorry you were wrong. They were never going to have death squads. If you would have stuck to the correct term of rationing care where people need it but won't receive it, instead of calling them a death squad, which is sensationalism, you might have gotten more traction. Still don't think we would have beat this thing because I think it was already going to happen exactly the way that it did. Now that I've seen it come out the other end, I can't see a better way for this to come out for the people that want to get everything they want out of it. What they've actually done, they put out this bill, and it has a few things that the sheeple will go, that's really good, that's great. They can't deny coverage for pre-existing conditions. Great. But you know what? There's absolutely no pricing controls over the industry for the next four years. And most of the things that will actually benefit people don't happen for four years. So the insurance companies look at this and go, we got to do everything we can between now and the end of the next four years to get as much as we can out of this industry before the government comes in and tanks it. So what are they going to do? They're going to raise prices every which way they can. They'll put surcharges. They'll cut expenses. They're going to milk this cow for four years like mad. And if the cow falls over and dies, and starts you start getting dust out of the udder, you put another cow in and you start milking that one. That's what they're going to do. Within four years, as the benefits start to come out, the government says, look, we're doing the best we can, and we're controlling the prices. For God's sakes, we told you we'd put pricing controls in. They're in effect now. You can appeal now. You can, and all, But they won't be pushing them back down. And they'll say, we would love to push them back down, but those evil Republicans didn't allow for that. If we only had the public option, and then the people of the United States will forget what happened four years ago, and they will turn to whoever's president at the time, be it Obama or, God forbid, and I think your leading candidate for president going into the next presidential election is Rick Perry. And don't you people outside of Texas be fooled by this idiot. You're not hearing it anywhere else. I'm telling you, he's the guy. That's when he's going to make his move. Whichever president it is, they will turn to them and say, President, Congress, Senate, please give on to us the public option. We must put a stop to what these insurance companies are doing. Look, you tried. We understand. We tried to meet in the middle, and they abused it. We've created a system where that's the only thing they can do is abuse it. And what will happen is we'll get a public option, whether we want one or not. But most of the dumbed-down people will believe that now is the time. It was almost right. Yeah, gee, Obama was right. That's what people are going to do. Now, if they pull off, you know the complete three-card money with this, and they get the carbon scheme running in the next two years. What you have to realize is the economic recovery will look really good at the point that people are begging for the public option. People won't be begging for the public option because they're poor. They'll be begging for the public option because they want to keep more of their money. And they're going to look at insurance as a tax at that point. And they'll say, we might, might as well pay that tax to the government too. At least it's controlled and it's based on how much we make and yada, yada, yada. So what happens at this point is you see the health insurance companies take all of the money that they've made and come up with something completely new. And I can't tell you what it is yet. I have no idea what it is yet. But they push that money back into the economy. The government starts paying everybody's medical bills. And you have two things that are spurring false recovery into the market. One is a, a, a metamorphosis 
of the healthcare industry, causing more money to move around. Remember, for the government to make money, for the economy to look good, money doesn't really have to be made, it just has to move. So we have one thing moving it, and then we have the other side, we have global warming nonsense creating money out of thin air. A new fiat currency coupled with a new evolution in the economy that makes the American people go back to sleep and believe everything is okay now. We came out the other side, a stronger, tougher nation, just like our ancestors came out of the Great Depression. We've now lived through the Great Recession. Why do you think they called it that? To create an affinity with the America we never were. And that's when it happens. And I can't tell you how long it'll run. I can't tell you exactly what it'll look like. But at some point, when the money's flowing again, and the Chinese have colonized m most of Africa, and they're exporting their citizens instead of their goods, which is their end game. They want enough control elsewhere in the world, and they want to build up the economies in these, these other nations to a point where it makes it safe for them to start sending their citizens there. They're already doing it. That's those engineers. But they want to send, they have 1.7 billion people, or 1.6 billion people. They've got to get some of them out of the country. They've got to send them elsewhere. They're, going to, they're not going to try to keep them in, as we've been told about communist governments. They've realized the way to spread their ideas is to spread their population. And as that population spreads and all that growth is in Asia and all that money has been made at the one last round of the Casino Royale in the United States of America, the top players cash in their chips quietly and they do their final exit and we're left to pay their bills. And they say those free drinks that everybody was drinking, they weren't really free. Here's the cost of your share of all the drinks that were consumed tonight. And you say, but I only had two bourbon and Cokes. I was over here at the nickel slots. And they say, we're sorry, you were here. If you had left yesterday, you would be fine. But since you stayed until today, you have to pay your share of the bills. That's what I see coming. That's the false recovery that I've been talking about. And I think the only thing that we can do to protect ourselves long term, if we're going to stay here and fight, and I plan on staying here and fighting, I'm not leaving, I'm not going to Asia, I'm not going to the Caribbean, I'm not going somewhere else. I'll stay here through whatever comes, and I'll continue to fight. And the only option we have is to be smart about what we're doing right now, and to create lives for ourselves that are so sustainable that the whole thing can come crashing down around us, and as long as we're not dealing with the zombie hordes, we may not even know. And this is the lifestyle that my grandparents had in the coal region of Pennsylvania over 80 years ago. This is what they were doing back then. They told me stories. They said, you know, that one day they were told that the Great Depression started. And they said, they, my grandfather said, I looked around, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. It all looked the same to me. We were poor, but we had what we needed. And he said, one day we were told the Great Depression was over. I looked around, and I thought they were crazy. We were still poor, but we still had everything we needed. And that really, without the poor part, is what we need to get back to. See, we have something those people don't or did not at the time. We actually have wealth. There's a tremendous amount of wealth here in this country, even now. And that wealth can be used to position ourselves so that 
we can be the people that go, what are you talking about? I don't, I, I, I don't know what depression or recession you're talking about. Detroit's crumbling? Really? Philadelphia's in a downturn? I, but my tomatoes are doing great and my greenhouse looks nice. I, I don't really get it. And you will get it. I'm making a point for you. I'm trying to be a little bit entertaining. And I'm trying to drive home a little bit of irony for you. The only reason that you believe the economy is good or bad right now, if you are one of the typical sheeple, is because the TV tells you. Most people are not judging the economy based on how they're living, unless they were living much better a few years ago than they are now. Those people are, because the stark reality is hitting them in the face on a daily basis. But I'll tell you that about 70 to 75% of the people of this country have not actually been affected one way or another by anything that's occurred in this great recession. They're still living in the same house. They're still driving the same car. They may not be able to sell their house, but many of them would never have sold their house anyway. They're still paying all their bills. They still have their job. They're still making the same salary that they were. But they believe the economy is terrible because the TV tells them so. And those are the same people that over the next six months, as the TV starts telling them how the economy is getting better and better and better, even if the unemployment rate goes down to a whopping 9%, will believe that the economy is better, and they'll believe that their lives are better. Because they're so myopic. And that's 60 to 70% of our population that are in a stumbling stupor. And only when the catastrophe hits them individually, their family, and their situation, and really affects to them, do they ever depart from what the TV says. And that's it. And that's the game. And I'm advising you today, stop playing the game. Don't believe what you hear on NBC, CBS, CNN, or even Fox News. You can get information from those sources. But when they tell you the trend of things, understand that they're telling you whatever they want to tell you at the given time. We can spin things any way we want. As we were continuing to lose jobs, what did the Obama administration say? We lost less jobs this month than last month. Isn't that great? Now, if they wanted you to feel that it was still getting worse... If they were in a position where that would have been advantageous to them, they would have said, look, we've lost more jobs. Now we've gained a crappy 160,000 jobs of more than you know, tens of millions that have been lost. And look, it's the road to recovery. Well, I actually believe, as I've told you today, that it is sort of the road to recovery. I'm sad to tell you that it's a recovery that I think will hurt more people than it will help. As it comes, as it happens, I want you to take advantage of it. I want you to benefit from it. But I also want you to never go back to sleep. I want you to always have cash in reserve. I want you to always have food stored. I want you to continue to look for that second piece of property if that's in your future. If it's not, it's not. But I want you to build that self-sufficient lifestyle while the economy's been going down for two years, I've been telling you to do it. Now I'm telling you it's leveling off and it may start pulling up. I'm telling you to do the same thing. Focus on the things that will make your life better if times get tough or even if they don't. That is the way to make sure that you're never caught off guard and punched in the face again. That you never go look at your 401k balance and go, huh, that's funny. It seems like this is half of what it used to be. 
that when it goes back and it starts going above that balance, that you move some of those assets into cash and cash equivalents. You stop putting all of your retirement money in your... If you are still... Let's say if you save 10% of your income every month right now, and all 10% of that income is going into your 401k, stop doing that. Especially if you're 30 years old. You might need some money between now and 59 and a half. And by the time... Trust me, folks. They're going to lock that money up. You're not getting it at 59 and a half if you're 30. They're going to raise Social Security age. They're going to raise the access to retirement fund ages. They might go jerking around with that money. They're already talking about looking at 401Ks and 403Bs and IRAs and all of that stuff, steps, and saying, hey, when when a person gets to a certain age, we're basically going to tell them that they have to take a portion of that money and put it into a government annuity that will guarantee them a payment for the rest of their life, and they can do what they like with the remaining balance. But we're not stealing their money. We're just safeguarding it for them. You keep putting your money in those accounts. That's what you're setting yourself up for. Now am I saying not to put any money in those accounts? No. I'm saying if you're saving 10%, put 5% into deferred retirement accounts and put 5% into something that's liquid, something that you can cash out tomorrow with no penalty if you want to. Why? You might need it. And I don't care that it grows faster in a retirement account. Right now, it hasn't grown very well for you, has it at all. We can go back to 1999, 11 years, and we have flat to no growth in most index funds. The last two recessions have wiped out everything. And that's a stark reality. So if you're 50 and you're still doing this, the other side of the coin... Ten years isn't a guarantee anymore. We've got to start getting smart. We've got to start thinking beyond what the TV says. And we've got to start solidifying our lives. So focus on the things that really matter. Invest in things that are going to be worth something to you in the future. Not just tomorrow and not just long term. But are going to be valuable for you between now and the long term. Things that are concrete material that provide for you. Turn your home into a homestead. That's the way forward. That's the way we're going to win this thing. That's the way when the final looting comes, you don't have to be one of the people left in the casino holding the bar bill for the high rollers. It's already happened to you. It's already happened to you. We just saw it happen to you. You paid for it with your investments more than anything else. Your house, your stocks, your bonds, your 401s, all of that stuff. That's how you paid their bar tab. If you don't ever want to pay their bar tab again, don't keep conducting business as usual. Think for yourself, pay attention to trends, and I'll be here to help you along the way. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream, and you can holler, it really doesn't matter, because it all gets spent.